Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. Every time I failed, I'm like, I'm such a loser. Why can't I figure this out? Like, it seems like everyone else is figuring things out and I can't. Like, why are they making money and doing what they love and traveling and all of this stuff? And I can't even figure this out. What's wrong with me, right? You always question yourself and whether what you're doing is the right thing. And coming from me, my personal experience coming from an immigrant family where I was told, that's not going to be good because it's not stable. So that even made more pressure. I made more pressure in myself because I wanted to prove to myself that I can make this work. Today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. My guest today is Debbie Archangelis. She is a location independent entrepreneur, world traveler, photographer, and the founder of The Offbeat Life where she teaches people how to learn remote skills to either work from home or start an online business. She is an expert at turning hobbies into profitable businesses. Originally from the Philippines, Debbie grew up primarily in the U.S. Prior to launching her own business, Debbie worked as a photojournalist, mostly with NGOs in Central America, Asia, and the Middle East, and her work has been shown in galleries across North America and Asia. Today, Debbie is also the host of the Offbeat Life podcast, where she interviews other location-independent entrepreneurs and digital nomads. She is also the founder of HowToCreateAPodcast.com, an all-in-one resource for learning how to launch, grow, and monetize a podcast. Debbie, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited to talk to you. I am excited to have you on the show. You are doing really, really cool stuff and you're interviewing and hanging out with a lot of really cool people. We have a number of friends in common. So I'm super excited to get into your story. And I would love to just start kind of going way back and learn a little bit about your upbringing. And also, as you were coming up, can you talk a little bit about sort of your artistic and creative tendencies that led you in that photojournalism direction? Absolutely. So I grew up in the Philippines and I came to the United States when I was around eight or nine years old. 
And yeah, everything was brand new. I didn't know anything. It was like a fish out of water. And I grew up in an immigrant family that really taught me that stability was extremely important and I needed to find a career that would allow me to have a regular nine to five, you know, the typical American dream, go to school, get a job, get married, have kids, retire when you're in your 60s and you're good to go. But unfortunately for my parents, that wasn't something that I wanted for myself. I was always into the arts, whether it was painting, uh, drawing or photography. And they knew they needed to dissuade me from that. So it was a lot of back and forth. But I was always the type of person that if you told me not to do it, I would do the total opposite. (laughs) So I ended up going into the arts and I was a photojournalist for several years before I left that and tried out a ton of other careers in my 20s before I finally started this business. And I also started and failed three other businesses before this one. So it's been a long journey before getting to this. (laughs) Well, I would love to learn a little bit about your experience as a photojournalist, because I know you also did a lot of world traveling and you were going to some amazing places while you were doing the photography work. So can you share a little bit about sort of your travel journey and what your experiences were like in places like Central America, the Middle East and Asia where you were? I was working with a few NGOs in Central America. I went to a few red no zone places like El Salvador and Guatemala and really worked with the families there. I was photographing indigenous areas and indigenous families to place on either their website or magazine. So I was doing that. And then I was also in the Middle East doing the same thing, working with a few NGOs there as well. And that's what I was doing. I was photographing indigenous areas and families. And I also showed a lot of the images that I was photographing in galleries here in New York City. And the last show that I did was in China with the United Nations. So my dream has always been to really help people, right? Like try to do as much as I can in order to shed light into families or areas that really needed the help. Most uh, photojournalists and people who work on NGOs, when you start out, that's really what you want to do. And then I really couldn't do it anymore because of the fact that I knew what was happening behind the scenes. So I also was burned out from all the traveling. And my biggest goal was to work with the United Nations. And when I had accomplished that, and obviously when I had accomplished showing my work in the galleries in New York City, I knew I needed to stop because it was just taking a huge toll on me. And I just stopped it in 2012, didn't touch my camera for about two years. But I traveled to a lot of those places that was really interesting. It's not really where most people would say, this is where I want to go. And go on vacation. (laughs) But it was really the most interesting for me. (laughs) Yeah, I wanted to ask about some of those reflections because you have been to some really interesting places and you've interacted with some amazing people. And 
I want to just sort of get your reflections on the personal growth that happened through those travel experiences. And maybe if you can share, you know, some moments that really impacted you, you know, as a human being, I know you mentioned to me, I've spent a lot of time in Egypt and you mentioned to me that you've been up to the Sinai and hung out with the Bedouins and stuff like that. And I would just love to hear what that was like and what your personal reflections on some of those experiences were. It's always great to be able to travel and see things in your own perspective and from your own eyes, because you'll see often from other people's experiences or obviously from the media that it's most of it, 80% of it is really false. So when I was doing an assignment in the Middle East, it was after the revolution. It was around, I believe it was like 2012, 2013. I think it was around that time. And it was just a few months after it had gone on and it was a pretty crazy time. And there was a lot of things in the news that was very negative about a lot of the areas. So I went there. I was very nervous. I was supposed to go to Palestine. There was a bombing the night before. We couldn't go. So then I had to switch gears. I had to find something else. So I thought it would be really interesting to find families in Egypt to photograph and just see what their perspective was like with what was happening. So We ended up going to Sinai. We took buses, (laughs) hitchhiked, and then we went there and I talked to a Bedouin. He was my contact. And there was really no tourist there at that time because everybody was told not to come. And I was also really nervous. I was afraid what was going to happen. But after a few minutes of meeting our guide, Mohammed, it was like we were pretty much embraced and treated like family. We spent time with the mayor, the doctors, the families. We didn't know the language, but everyone was so welcoming. They fed us. They told us stories about their family, their culture. So that's really what I love about traveling. It's not just the place itself, because you can always go to a place that's beautiful, right? But for me, what makes a huge difference is really the people that you meet and also learning from their personal experiences. I mean, I know what it's like, the difference between the Philippines and the United States. And it makes you really appreciate when you go to another country and see another perspective of what life is like and what you take for granted when you're at home, especially here in North America. It's a huge difference in the lifestyle. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, a lot of my top memories as well from the Middle East are hanging out in Bedouin tents and smoking shisha with the Bedouins. And they're amazing people. And it really is incredible when you're able to connect with locals, especially in places that aren't highly touristy. So I want to also ask you, Debbie, after you have done all this traveling, I want to ask you what it was like to go back to the Philippines, where you mentioned you grew up until about eight or nine Then you grew up the rest of your life in the U.S. And so after you started traveling and you went back to the Philippines as an adult, as an independent person, as an experienced world traveler, what were your reflections on that? How was that to reconnect with your homeland? When I would go back to the Philippines, I believe I went back three times before 
going back and finally seeing the country, we would just go to the same place. I would either go by myself or I would go with my father and we would go to that tiny town that I grew up in and my dad's family was in. And most of the time when you're an immigrant and you go back to your country, you usually just stay there to visit your family. You don't go there as a tourist. You just see your family, you hang out with them because you probably haven't seen them in years, you know? So you want to spend time with people that you love. So it's really interesting because every time I talk to people who have been to the Philippines, they're not even from there. They would tell me all about these incredible places. And then they'd ask me if I have any recommendations of where else to go. And I never had any recommendations because I would just go to Manila where the airport was and then fly to the town that my family was in. We would never even leave that area. So when I finally went there about five years ago with my fiance, we were able to go to other areas of the country. And it was like the first time for me because I've never been to any of those places. So it was seeing it in fresh new eyes and in a different angle than what I usually would see it. So it was amazing. And I didn't realize how beautiful the Philippines was. I mean, I've seen photos of Palawan and Cebu and all of these other places. And we didn't even go to too many spots, but it was insane. I didn't realize how really beautiful it was until I finally left that tiny town that I usually visited when I went back. Wow. So I want to ask for your top recommendations for travelers going to the Philippines. I have actually not yet been to the Philippines. It is very high on my list. I'm super excited to go. So for anybody that is interested in going or potentially going back, what are your top recommendations for things to do and see in the Philippines? I mean, I still have a lot of places on my list as well when I go back to the Philippines. But one of the places that we really loved, uh, Aaron and I, was in Palawan, in um, Puerto Princesa. So it's islands there and you can go island hopping and it's just the most beautiful beaches I've ever seen in my life. And the water was so clear. The people, obviously, the Filipino people are really friendly. So you always feel like you're at home there. So I would recommend that. Do a little island hopping, do some swimming. You definitely won't regret it. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, I know you have also done a lot of world travel and done a lot of hiking and seen seen a lot of really epic landscapes. And I wanted to just ask you about some of your highlights, you know, from some of those types of travels as well. You mentioned to me that you've gone down to Torre del Pine and, and Patagonia and the Chilean side and done the W circuit. And then you've, you've done the four to five day hike in Iceland and some of those really epic routes. And I have not done either of those. And I would love to hear and just, you know, for people that have never done that, what was that like for you? So for about two or three years, Aaron and I, who was my fiance, we were really into hiking. Like we just wanted to go to the most epic spots in the world that we could really, I don't know, I guess be a part of nature, you know, and we just chose the W track and then we chose Iceland and One of the things that we really loved during that time was not really visiting the tourist spots and just honestly, to tell you the truth, I hate sightseeing. I don't like going to museums. I love food and I love scenery and I love off the beaten places, which hence the offbeat life. 
And what we really wanted to accomplish was seeing nature at its best, right? We don't want to see uh, buildings. We live in New York City. We don't need to see any of that stuff. And when we do, we usually have a layover or, you know, a stopover in those towns and we explore it. But we really wanted to see nature at its best. So that's why for about two or three years, we chose different spots to hike in, like in the Southwest. We were in New Mexico. And then we ended up going to the W track. We trained for that for a few months because that was a very long hike. And then we ended up going to Iceland. And then we also did a hike in Ireland. So pretty much everywhere we would travel, we would try to find a hiking spot that we can go to because that's really what we love to do. You know, my travel now is different. So I feel like every few years, my travel becomes different. Now it's not about hiking. But yeah, it always evolves. But those places, if you can do it, I would say once we can travel again, or even if you have anywhere now, I think it's one of the most amazing things you can do is really be part of nature and really see it at its best like that. You mentioned that you also travel for food. And I wanted to ask you about your top culinary experiences of all of your world travels. What are the top food experiences that stand out to you? I think that's going to be my next goal. I have one of my close friends that I actually met when I was in Central America and we've traveled to like six countries together and she's a total foodie. So whenever we would travel together, she would introduce me to different places. But I think that's my next goal is to just travel for food. But I have traveled to places that the food was just excellent. We talked about this a week ago, Matt, about Sardinia. So we ended up going there really for the reason of food, because there's a lot of farm to table restaurants there where it's family owned, they grow everything, everything is from that farm. And it was really the best, I mean, the most amazing food I've probably ever had, or at least one of the top that I've had going there in Sardinia. And because, you know, the Philippines, I love Filipino food, obviously the Philippines. Let's see, I love food in the South and in the United States. I love barbecue and just rich food. I honestly believe every culture has their own types of good food. So I think you can find it as long as you're not too picky of an eater. I also want to ask you, Debbie, about, you know, as a photojournalist and also as a traveler, I want to ask you about the ethics of photographing human beings in the places where you're traveling. Because I know you've done that professionally, as you mentioned, in an NGO context. And then you also obviously travel independently a lot. And I feel like that's a question that I would love to get your perspective on as people are traveling around the world to these different places. What are the ethics around photographing human beings? I definitely do not recommend just photographing anyone. You need to ask their permission. And when I was working with the NGOs, they needed to sign something in order for me to take a picture of them or even publish it. So that's what I had to do. We were just super extra careful about that, especially if it's family or even children. You just don't do that. You just don't start taking photos of anyone's children. Sorry, I'm in New York City, so you may hear some sirens. But (laughs) yeah, I don't recommend doing that at all. And 
I tell people this all the time. Can you imagine if you're walking around in the street and some strangers just starts photographing you and your children? Like, how would you feel about that? Would you feel insulted? Would you feel protective? Like, how would you react when a stranger just starts photographing you and your your children, your family, that's invasion of privacy. So definitely don't do that. <laughs> don't take photos just because you think the like people look cool. I think that's also really horrible to do. Yeah, that's what I think about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's important, right? I mean, as people are traveling around the world to really have a very respectful protocol about basically never photographing human beings unless there's a particular situation where, I mean, for me, it's typically like if I'm interacting with someone and I'm kind of getting to know them and I'm, I've had a connection with them and they're a local person or whatever, then oftentimes you can ask them, say, Hey, do you want to take a picture together or something like this? And, you know, to sort of remember that person and your connection with them in almost all situations, it would be reciprocal. Oftentimes people will come up to me and they'll want to take pictures with me and then I'll take pictures with them. And it'll be kind of like a, a mutual thing. But I think that permission aspect of it and, and clearly making sure that people are comfortable because a lot of places in the world, I mean, people have major aversions to that. I mean, there's there's religious beliefs yeah. that have aversion to that and other types of things that it's really important, I think, to be respectful of that as a traveler. And there's even certain places that you are not allowed to take photos of and you have to be mindful of that as well and respect that. I mean, you're in another person's property, you're in another country, there's different rules. So you have to be aware of what you're doing because it's a huge no-no, especially if it's a religious area as well. And that's a really big deal. Yeah, totally agree. So, Debbie, I would love now to sort of change gears and learn a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey and maybe just starting with your initial tendencies and inspiration to become an entrepreneur. And then you mentioned that you failed at a number of businesses before you finally succeeded. So I would love for you to just kind of take us through that journey and, and your reflections on it. Well, I always wanted to do something <laughs> that was entrepreneurial and artistic. And there was a lot of ups and downs trying to figure things out, a ton, a ton of failures before finally getting to the point where I am now, where I actually have a business. And it just took a lot of time, a lot of figuring out. That's why I tell people all the time, whatever it is that you're interested in, try it out because you don't know where it's going to lead you or even what skills you're going to learn from it that will help you in your next business or in your next journey, whatever it's going to be. So I had three businesses. One of them was purely because I thought it would be great because I had experience in it. It was teaching parents how to teach their kids through play because I was a therapist for a while through art. So I did that. We actually had a brick and mortar and we had students, but the rent in New York City was just too high. So it didn't work out. And we also had an online business with that as well. But it just took up so much of my time as a creative. And what I learned from that as well is not just to focus on the creative side of it, but you also need to obviously create income. So that's what I learned from that. And then another business that we started, it was purely for profit. So what I 
learned from that is you can't just go at it about it just for profit. You also need to have passion because it's going to sizzle out. And that's what happened to it. And then the third one was an online e-commerce business. So again, I was really into creating stuff, but I didn't know anything and I wasn't really interested in the e-commerce side of it. So again, that's a fail. But I learned so much from all of that. I learned how to train and hire people. I learned how to negotiate. I learned how to do partnerships with people. So it was really, really helpful. And during the times when we failed, it seemed like the end of the world, but it actually helped me grow and really take all of the stuff that I learned to the business that I have now. How did you handle the failures mentally and emotionally, right? When you fail and then you fail again, and then you fail a third time, what is sort of your mental and emotional process for continuing to go on? Because I feel like a lot of people, if they fail three separate times, they try three businesses, they fail three times, a lot of times they'll give up and they'll say, well, maybe I, I can't do it, or maybe it's not for me. And then they'll maybe go just get a regular job again that they're not extremely excited about. How did you, after failing three times, what was your mental and emotional process for continuing on and eventually figuring it out. Oh, yeah. I went through all of those things for sure. Every time I failed, I'm like, I'm such a loser. Why can't I figure this out? Like, it seems like everyone else is figuring things out and I can't. Like, why are they making money and doing what they love and traveling and all of this stuff? And I can't even figure this out. What's wrong with me, right? You always question yourself and whether what you're doing is the right thing. And coming from me, my personal experience coming from an immigrant family where I was told, that's not going to be good because it's not stable. So that even made more pressure. I made more pressure in myself because I wanted to prove to myself that I can make this work. So every single failure that I had really hit hard. But I knew that what was worse than failing was staying at a job that I didn't really want. And that's what I was doing, right? So before leaving my job before this, before this business, I was at a nine to five job that most people would have thought was like the American dream. I was working a regular job, but I made my own hours. I didn't work a lot of hours. I could take off whenever I want. The company that I was working for was great. I went to school for this. This was the career that I was supposed to have. You know, my parents were proud that I was actually sticking with this one. But every four months, Matt, I was having panic attacks. And that's how I knew that this was not really something that I could make myself do for the next 20 years, you know? So for me, it was more of a failure to stick to something that I didn't really want to do with my life than keep failing and finally hoping <laughs> that I would finally figure it out because it's just not an option for me. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, 
without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now back to the episode. To stop because it wasn't right for me as well. So let's talk about the offbeat life and your founding of that business. And I would love to also, if you can talk about the entrepreneurial transition of the actual process for how you built that up, how and when you eventually left your job to do it full time and what that sort of entrepreneurial leap was like for you. And then also how you eventually got that business to work. What was fundamentally different from your first three? So the first thing is that I already failed so many times that I learned a ton, right? I think if I had just started this business, it would probably, I don't know if I would have failed because my passion for it and my interest is just really, really high, but it wouldn't have gone as quickly as it did if I didn't know all of the things I knew already. So the reason why I started this business was not really for business. I didn't even know I could make this into a business. I was hoping I could make some money from it eventually, but I didn't realize or I didn't know it was going to make money less than a year of me starting it. So I started this first for the podcast. Like I said, I was at my day job. I was not happy at all. I was having panic attacks and I knew I needed to change something. And I was introduced to podcasting. And I really was interested in the people who are making the digital nomad lifestyle and location independent lifestyle sustainable. And that's what I wanted. I didn't want to travel and then have to come back, do my day job, save and then travel again. I wanted this to be sustainable or at least have the freedom to not be in an office or, you know, when I was working, I was traveling a lot. So I wanted to have more freedom for myself. And that's how the podcast started. I started interviewing people that I met, whether it was in, during my travels or online that I met who are doing this type of lifestyle. And it just kind of snowballed from there. And then six months later, I was approached by brands who wanted to sponsor the podcast. And that's when you know it clicked. Okay, I can make money from this. And then within eight months of starting, I was making five figures And I was making the same amount of money or even a little better than my day job. And then a year and a half later, I was able to leave my nine to five to do this full time. So it was a lot of learning, obviously, because I've never done this part of it before. I've started online businesses before, but not to this degree. Another thing that really helped was actually the people that I interviewed on my podcast became close friends and they kind of mentored me, right? They taught me how to negotiate, how to approach brands, how to make things work. So that was also really useful for me as well. Can you talk a little bit more about how you grew and monetized the podcast that quickly? I mean, what kind of listenership numbers were you getting when you started negotiating those brand deals? And can you give a little bit more detail about how you were able to monetize so early and effectively? Yeah. So a lot of people, I think a misconception that people think is there's not going to be a lot of money if you're just starting out and if you don't have big numbers. I mean, that's definitely true. But what I did that was different was that I knew my audience in and out. 
I knew what they wanted. I knew who they were, what they were going to want. And when the brands approached me, they also knew exactly who my audience was because I just had a clear niche. And also at that time, I was getting featured. My podcast was getting featured in Refinery29. And now we've been featured in Forbes, Travel and Leisure, Uprox, all of these huge publications. So we were just getting noticed. Like the podcast was getting noticed. And that's how really how we grew. I also collaborated with a lot of podcasters getting on internet interviews that had similar niche. So that's how we were growing. I didn't pay for any ads, by the way. This is all organic. It's been three years now and I've never paid an ad of any form, whether it's Google ads, Facebook, any of that stuff. So it's all just organic. And when I started getting income, I had about 3000 or less listenership a month, which is ridiculous to be making that money. And the reason why I was able to do that is because again, I knew who my audience was. And I learned how to negotiate really, really well. And yeah, and I still have clients that have been with me for almost two years now, and they're still here. So it really works. But you just have to learn how I think this is a thing most people don't understand how being a good negotiator is such a key to to having a business, especially when you have clients and also obviously giving something it has to be a win win for everybody. Yeah. Can you give some examples of when you say you really knew your audience, you knew what they wanted and the types of brands that wanted to speak to your audience? Can you give any specifics on that just as as a sort of an example for your niche? Yeah. So for example, the people that are listening to my show are wannabe digital nomads, right? So most people who listen to my show are not already digital nomads. They either want to be or they're just starting out and they want inspiration. So what we do is we give them that inspiration, whether they want to start an online business, they want to start working remotely. We give them tips to do that. We give them inspiration and just let them know that this is actually possible and you can make this sustainable. So those are really the type of people that are going to listen to our podcast. So now the brands come to us who are trying to get those people to them, whether it's a course that they have, whether it's a teaching English online, getting a TOEFL certification, whether it's for taxes, like anything that really a remote worker will need to have. So those are the types of brands that have come to us, insurance companies. So we really know what it is that they're going to need. And I also think about what I'm already using and what I need myself because I am my own listener, right? So that's really what you need to take a look at. You really need to write it down. You need to make sure that you know who your audience is so that your brand will speak to the right company and have a good partnership and collaboration. And what tips do you have about negotiating those higher dollar brand deals when you only have, let's say, 3,000 listeners a month? Don't follow the industry standard. I think that is the biggest mistake that you can do. One of my mentors who I spoke to, the first thing that he said to me, and I still do it today, ask them for what you feel is right. Oh, this is the thing. See what other people are charging that are making money, (laughs) who maybe are around the same level as you. 
and then go in the middle. Don't do what they're doing. Go a little higher and go in the middle and then see what happens. If they don't bite after three, then you have to lower your price. If they bite within three pitches, then you know you need to up your either right or you need to up your pricing. So that's really what you should do. Don't follow the industry standard and make your own pricing. That's how I've done it with either my brand sponsorship deals or the clients that I have now that we have for services. And I've gotten pretty good with negotiations that we actually land 80% of the deals that we have going. Wow. So in terms of identifying brands that would be relevant for your niche and then approaching them and pitching them, what is sort of the process for a podcaster to do that? Again, research, knowing who your audience is, knowing who their target market is or who their ideal client is. And if you can see an overlap with that, how it can be a win-win for the both of you, then that's the perfect brand to pitch. Make sure you're personalizing it. I see this all the time. People will just have a one-size-fits-all pitch plan and that never works. I see it with me when people pitch to me, whether to go on my podcast or I don't know, like work for us. I can tell and I'm sure Matt, you can tell. You can tell when people are just putting whatever it is on there and you can tell that it's not really personalized. So do your research, make it personalized, really understand who these brands are because they're going to notice that and always negotiate the deal. Don't take the first thing that comes in. This is also really interesting. So I got brands that pitch to me and they want to, you know, get on the podcast or on my social media for free. And we end up getting thousands of dollars from them because, you know, I try to turn it around. Right. So don't feel like they don't have a budget. They do, but you just need to learn how to actually get that money and turn it into profit for you because it's there. And when you were talking about pricing your pitch offer, right? How do you go about finding out, let's say, what your, if you want to call them competitive podcast or podcast in the same niche, how do you go about finding out how many listeners do they have? What are they charging for their ads? Because a lot of times that's not necessarily out there in the public, right? Yeah. So, I mean, if you have close podcast friends, some of them will be willing to do that. But if really you can't get anyone to share with you their pricing, like I said, do it yourself. You don't need to follow the standard and, you know, follow that rule. If you do it, you don't get any bites after three, then lower it. If you get a bite within three, then either stay with that for a while or you can hire your price. That's awesome. Good tips. So I want to ask you now, Debbie, just personally, you have interviewed a lot of really amazing people. I know some of them. I do not know a lot of them. And (laughs) you have some really amazing interviews that I'm still uh, excited to go through a whole bunch more of them. But I want to ask you, after interviewing all of those amazing people, what are some of the lessons that you've learned just from having conversations with these extraordinary, inspiring people? When you think back to all of these interviews, are there sort of, you know, moments or realizations or, you know, really inspiring lessons that you got from your podcast guests? What are some of the ones that stand out? 
Well, I don't, I mean, they all stand out to me because I feel like I learned so much. But one of the things that I've learned from pretty much every single person that I've interviewed is that no one is lucky, right? No one is lucky. It's all about persistence and doing the work and staying in the game because we often see the success and we say all the time, oh, they're so lucky. But that's BS. No one is lucky. They worked their butts off to get to where they are and they failed a ton. And every single person that I've interviewed fail a lot before they actually succeeded or there was something that happened in their life that really made them pivot and change or they had no choice. And really, that's what happens. You know, you either make it or you break it. And if you break it (laughs) and you, you can't get back up, then you go back to your nine to five. And that's really for a lot of us, when we think about it, that's our worst case scenario. It's not so bad, right? There's no life and death here. Thank goodness we live in a place where we're not going to die if we don't succeed in something. So the worst case scenario is to go back to a nine to five and that's never too bad. So just being persistent and making your own luck is really what I learned from everyone that I've interviewed. That's really awesome. I think your uh, podcasting journey is super inspiring as well. And I know that you have developed a podcasting course. And can you talk a little bit about what the course offers? Yeah, absolutely. So, so many people have been asking me what you ask me to, Matt, like, how do I start this? How do I monetize it? How do I make it grow? So I didn't even plan on starting this website. So I feel like the offbeat life was not planned to go this way. And then I also didn't plan on doing how to create a podcast.com, but it happened because of what people wanted. So I first started the how to create a podcast.com website to help people. And we have a ton of free resources there. And I have a ton of secrets, right? Like how to negotiate, how to price yourself, all of these things that I've learned in the three years that I've been doing this, and also how to get featured in huge publications, get noticed that way by brands. And I was able to put it all and package this like kind of like my secret sauce in this program that I created. And this is tried and true by me and the students that I have as well. And I use these techniques. So I say this all the time, like the stuff that I share with you there, whether it's negotiating or pricing, even if you don't have a podcast, whether you don't start a podcast right away, but you have a business, you can use that with anything. So the negotiating techniques that I use and the pricing that I do, I use that with the other parts of my business aside from my podcast as well. So I just put it all in there, everything that I've pretty much learned that has worked and what has worked for my students as well. And we have it. You can also watch a free masterclass that we have. You can go to howtocreatepodcast.com. You can sign up for that. And then I tell you about the program that I have that you can sign up for. And if you do that, you can, for your listeners, Matt, you can use the coupon Maverick and then we'll give you 10% off for that as well. So everything you pretty much need, you don't need to like Google or YouTube, anything. We we gave it in there for you. That's awesome. We are going to link that up in the show notes along with the discount code to get your discount on that for anybody that's interested in starting a podcast. And then for people that are just interested, maybe they're not podcasters, but they're just interested in moving towards the location-independent lifestyle, You know, finally starting that location-independent business. What Talk a little bit about the Offbeat Life website and what the resources are and other ways people can work with you. 
Absolutely. So you can go to the offbeatlife.com. Again, we have a ton of free resources there to help you find online jobs, start an online business. We also have the podcast there that you can listen to to give you more inspiration. And we also have a weekly newsletter that we hand out every Wednesday if you sign up for that. And we give you new online jobs that you can apply to. And I also give out my tips on how to land online jobs there as well. So you can just go to theoffbeatlife.com to get all of that information. That's awesome. So we're going to link all of that stuff up in the show notes, folks. And Debbie, I want to ask you one final question before we move into the lightning round. And I want to ask you how you deal personally with the stress and anxiety that all entrepreneurs experience when that entrepreneurial roller coaster goes on the down cycle. And I want to just ask you, you know, at this point in your life with all these experiences that you've had, what techniques or tips do you have for stress management? So first I exercise, whether it's just to go for a walk, go to a run, go somewhere and hike just to get my mind off of things, because obviously you can't just stay there and just be super down all the time. Also, a good cry is is really helpful because <laughs> you can't <laughs> bottle it up. I do cry sometimes. You know, there are some weeks that are great. There's some weeks that are not so great. So it's kind of like we're um, bipolar. Entrepreneurs are definitely bipolar. One week is awesome. The next week it sucks. Um, and also, honestly, when I'm feeling super down, I just let myself not do anything because I feel like whenever we're like, oh, this sucks. Like we want to keep going. And then it just becomes worse because we make mistakes or we just make it worse for ourselves. It's kind of like self-fulfilling prophecy when you're like, I suck. And then you kind of tend to do that. So I just give myself time to rest. I've done that for like a day or two, even a week or two. I've done that a few times and then just get my mind off of it. And then once I do that, then I get a clearer head and then I start thinking about ways I can actually solve the issue. So that's really what I've been doing that has helped me. So it's my type of way to like meditate is just clear my head, not think about it, because if you focus on it, it just becomes worse and worse. And you're just going to go down a really bad spiral of self-loathing and hate and like failure. Oh my gosh, I suck. (laughs) Those are really, really good tips, Debbie. All right. At this point, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? Yes, I'm excited. (laughs) Let's do it. All right. What is one book that has significantly influenced you over the years that you'd most recommend people check out? I would say How to Win Friends and Influence People. I think it is a must read for anyone, whether you have a business or not, because it has helped me really know how to deal with people really keep good employees because of how I've dealt with them and also how to negotiate. It's an amazing book. It's so old, but it still pertains even now. Awesome. Who is one person currently alive today that you've never met that you would most love to have dinner with just one-on-one an evening and dinner with you and that person? Betty White. (laughs) (laughs) Betty freaking White. She's amazing. I love the Golden Girls and I think she is an icon and I want to be just like her when I grow up. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's an amazing pick. 
All right, Debbie, if you could go back in time, knowing everything that you know now and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Debbie? Start an online business right away and fail as much as you can. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) All right. What are your top three favorite travel destinations you've ever been that you would most recommend people check out? I would say Palawan, which is in the Philippines, Iceland. I think it's incredible. Menorca in Spain. And if I could have a fourth, I would say to you, Matt, this is just for you. I would say Sardinia, go back there again because you need to try the food again. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so so we didn't even give context for that when you mentioned it earlier. But I think this is a really good travel lesson that I'm totally open to, which is that sometimes you'll have a travel experience which is not optimal in a particular place, right? So for me, it was interesting because I've spent a bunch of time in different places in Italy and I've traveled around. And in most places in Italy, the food is really uniquely spectacular. And I went to Sardinia, which for folks that don't know is an Italian island. And I was only there for a few days and I was only in one place. I was in Olbia in the north of Sardinia. And for some reason, all of the food that we had there the entire time was not great. It was not anywhere, (laughs) certainly near up to the par with the rest of Italy, right? And so you then told me of all time, some of your, one of your top culinary experiences ever was in Sardinia. And I was super excited to hear that (laughs) because I feel like when we travel places, sometimes you might go to a place, especially if you're there for a short time and you have a negative experience in any way, right? That we don't have a total comprehensive sort of negative impression of the place leaving that, but just that you had a negative experience, but then being open to other people that have had really positive experiences and then being willing to eventually sort of go back and try to experience what those other more positive experiences were like for other people. Yeah. So you need to go back. <laughs> yeah, I need to go back to Sardinia and I'm going to get yeah. your Rex on exactly where yes. to eat. And I want to see more of the island too. I yeah. mean, I only saw a very small part, but Oh, that's it's amazing. a beautiful island. You're going to love it when you go back. <laughs> that's amazing. All right. Last question. I want to ask for your top three bucket list destinations. These are places you've never been that are the highest on your list. You'd most love to go. So I love going to islands, as you can tell, you know, Palawan, Iceland, Menorca, Sardin. I just love little islands. And the reason why is because I don't like to get overwhelmed because I'm the type of person like I want to see and do everything. So I choose usually when I travel by myself, smaller islands so that I can relax when I travel. So the three top places that I really want to travel to is first the Azores. It's in off the coast of Portugal. I want to go back to Chile and go to Easter Island. That's one of my top places and also the Faroe Islands. But any pretty much islands that is beautiful, I want to go to. I think I'm an island girl at heart. You know, I was born in the Philippines. I was born in a little island. I'm in New York City. It's also in an island. So just that's just my staple. So <laughs> wait, can you say where the Faroe Islands are? So the Faroe Islands, it's in Europe. So it's very close to Iceland, actually. But it just has really beautiful scenery in it. And it's a tiny, again, it's a small island. 
and it's just gorgeous. You should all like if you don't know where it is, you should definitely Google it. The Faroe Islands. I think it's amazing. Awesome. Yeah. We're actually going to link all these places up yeah. in the show notes so folks can go and uh, see them. Maybe we'll see each other there. Because I recommended that would be great. That would be awesome. Right? <laughs> that, would, that, would, that would definitely be amazing. Listen, I'm down for stuff like that. What beautiful islands? Okay, when are we going? I'm, I'm in. That's, that's kind of how I plan my travels. So that is awesome. I can definitely recommend the Azores, though. I went there for my birthday about two oh, years ago, yeah. and I was there for a couple weeks, and it was really a truly spectacular place. I mean, these are volcanic islands mm-hmm. that are in literally in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, you yep. say off the coast of Portugal, but these are like halfway between Europe and yeah. the U.S. in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And historically, they have not had nearly as much tourism. Yeah. And so there's just like greenery and stuff that's, that's mind blowing. And by the way, there's very unique local types of wine and types of tea and things that just, you know, grow there and you can just have them there. And it's a really unique experience and uh, and quite amazing. So I, I do highly recommend. Yeah, the I'm getting goosebumps just you talking about this because I've been wanting to go there. So my fiance and I were supposed to get married this year, but we had to postpone it. And that's where we were actually planning on like going to our honeymoon or even getting married there. But, you know, with everything that's happened, but I just love these off the beat places that just have the most incredible scenery. And I think I don't know, sometimes I feel like when you go to those spots, it feels like maybe this is what heaven looks like. I don't know, because they're just so beautiful. So like maybe this is what heaven will look like or, you know, afterlife. I would be good. (laughs) It it is really bonkers. Like the scenery in the Azores is really next level, ridiculous and unique and really extraordinary. So I think those are some great picks. But yeah, we're going to link up uh, all those locations in the show notes as well, folks. You can just go to one place at themaverickshow.com. And Debbie, I want to thank you for being here. And I want you to let folks know how they can find you, follow you on social media and learn more about you. How do you want people to come into your universe? Yeah, absolutely. So you can uh, go to theoffbeatlife.com to find online jobs and start an online business. You can also go to howtocreatepodcast.com to learn more about how to start a podcast. (laughs) And on social media, I'm mostly on Instagram, The Offbeat Life and on Facebook, The OB Life. So yeah, you could find me any time over there. Send me a message, send me a DM, whatever it is that you want to do. And I usually respond back most of the time. (laughs) That's awesome. We are going to link up all the websites and all the social handles in the show notes. You can just go to one place at themaverickshow.com. You're also going to have your discount link there if you're interested in any of Debbie's courses. Debbie, this was amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Matt. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you buy cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. 
Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber. To get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals, schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.